That's like a take. <laughs> okay. I, you always clap when you start audio because if you just start talking into the microphone, it comes out kind of garbled and then it comes becomes nice. So good to know. Good you do that know. for sound levels. Okay. I need to close my eyes so you're not looking. <laughs> Welcome back to the Digital Sue Podcast. It's the season three premiere episode, and we're recording this way before February, but, you know, it's February of 2021. Very exciting. So we're, we moved our new date to February to talk about Chinese New Year, and it's also called the Lunar New Year, so we have all sorts of people coming on to talk to me all about the history of the holiday and we have a very special ending couple of interviews talking about news and astronomy. You'll hear the reason why later, but usually you guys know I like to start the podcast introducing myself and having a nice little story or a little joke. For special reasons, I have my mom on, and she's here to tell you about the reason why she has her nickname, and we're going to throw it over to her. Oh, hey, honey. Thank you for having me on your podcast. This is so cool. Ooh, I'm so exciting. <laughs> um, so yes, my, my nickname is Moon, um, and I'm kind of embarrassed to be talking to my daughter about why my nickname is Moon, and it's not because I expose myself anywhere. Um, my, this is back in 1981. I, my first job was in North Carolina in Greensboro, and I had met this wonderful group of friends. Um, and they'd known me for about a week. And uh, we decided to go out partying. And before we went out, we stopped back at my apartment. And at the time, I had, uh, I had a roommate from West Virginia. And in West Virginia, they liked to make moonshine. And uh, she had left some behind. And uh, she told me to help myself to it. Well, 21-year-old me didn't just need a, a little sip. I had quite a few um, uh, samplings from it. And anyway, so long story short, my friends were coming over to my house before we went out and partied. And uh, I said, hey, you guys want to try some moonshine? And they did. And <laughs> we ended up finishing the whole, like, it must have been like a gallon, maybe. There were, and, and it wasn't just like four of us. There were probably eight of us. So, you know, it was still a lot of moonshine, I'm, I'm afraid. But uh, anyway, one thing I remember from that night is... Uh, <laughs> We were looking at each other going, well, um, oh gosh, okay, you can cut this out. Um, it was just a, a thought I had. Um, I remember my friends sitting there and we were looking at each other going, well, my God, we can't walk, we can't drive. How are we going to get there uh, to this bar that we were going to? And so um, we ended up taking a taxi, I think. And uh, there were about eight of us trying to pile into that taxi. But anyway, so long, oh, this, oh Okay, I'm trying to cut this story short. Um, so from there, uh, <laughs> the next day, there was this story on the news about um, this poor boy who had gone blind from drinking moonshine. And so I felt really awful about that. I thought, oh, great. I hope I haven't blinded all of my new best friends. And anyway, so the next day, um, Jackie 
who is a dear friend still to this day, uh, just started calling me Moon. So, um, you know, for the moonshine. So I have been Moon ever since then. Um, do you want me to tell a story about why it's called, it's spelled the way it's spelled? Because moonshine spelled with an E or no? No. <laughs> oh, why, why is it? So your nickname is Moon, but spelled M-O-O-N-E. So exactly. why is it with an E then? Well, okay. And so this is an even dumber story <laughs> because um, I, you know, I was kind of a little bit of a partier when I was, you know, in my early 20s. And a friend of so my last name, my maiden name was Walker, and uh, we were at a at a bar one night, and um, a you know a, a guy friend of ours walked up to me, and uh, he, he he goes, um, uh, oh right, okay, so he goes, um, so Moon, how do you spell that? And I no, he goes, so how do you spell your last name? No, 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 wait a minute. Okay, you're recording this, right? Yeah, I'm recording. <laughs> so he goes, okay, so my friend Jackie, right, her last name is Womble, and everybody calls her Womble, right? And uh, my other good friend, is her name is Leanne Bird, and everybody calls her Bird. Mm -hmm. So um, he, he thought my last name was Moon, and he asked me, well, how do you, so how do you spell your last, no, how do you spell your last name? Is there an E in it? And I went, <laughs> that's the dumbest question. E R. Yes, there is an E in it. Oh. <laughs> so ever since then, you know, that was a running joke, and so now that's why I always, I spell it M-O-O-N-E, because there is an E in my last name. You thought I don't moon. think you ever told me that part of the story. I always thought it was spelled with an E because moonshine spelled with an E. No. <laughs> oh, well, that sound, I don't know if you guys can pick that up, but it's my dad moving the grill around. Oh, shops for dinner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he brought home like two steaks and he's like, hey, are you still not eating red meat? <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> Which. By the way, listeners, hopefully I have kept that promise. That was my New Year's resolution for 2020 is to be a little more earth friendly. So I stopped eating red meat because it takes up quite a bit of water. I'm sure I can have an interjection right now telling me how, telling guys just how much uh, water it takes to keep a cat, cow alive. Why, yes, I can tell you past Sam. So it takes about 55 gallons a day to keep a cow alive, and that adds up to 20,075 gallons per year. And that's just water. We're not even taking into account the land space you need to graze them and the feed you have to give them. Okay, well, he knows I'm recording for a podcast. It's, I can't hear it, so. Okay, <laughs> but I feel like my computer's going to pick it up because I swear. I thought it wouldn't pick, it picks up like half the sounds that I like don't think it's going to pick up. And then sometimes it just doesn't pick up stuff at all. Like uh, dad was in his office, like down the hallway and it picked up like half of his conversation. <laughs> and so I like had to re-record like a 20 minute segment because it was just like, I had no way of taking that out. And I kind of just wanted, I had like a so it could have just taken me 20 extra minutes to just delete that in two seconds, re-record it. But I took like a whole day of going back and forth of like, do I want it? Can I just leave it in and have and be funny about it? Mm -hmm. I like procrastinated. Well, you know what's really, 
you know what's really funny is you're absolutely right because where you are now there's you know no carpet other than in the bedroom so all the sound in the apartment just zooms up and down everywhere because it's you know sliding across the, the but here when we're here um we kind of forget that the sound doesn't carry so i'll be talking to your dad and he, you know he'll say i can't hear you i can't what <laughs> what what so we kind of have to yell here versus you know uh happened to there yeah well now that we're recording this uh I just got my uh, an apartment that I'm going to live in with a couple of roommates. Three other girls in this house that I'm sharing the house with. The four all together. The four of us all together, yeah. But uh, that whole place is carpeted, which is exciting. Not the like bathrooms and the kitchen, obviously, but you know, it's carpeted, so obviously we can like have the podcast. I don't remember if I told them in my interview if I have a podcast or not. I think I told them I had the website, but I can't remember if I said podcast. All right. Well, I guess that's the best stopping place at that interview. My mom and I tend to ramble. And I figured that you guys want to get into the meat and potatoes of this week's episode. Right before we have interviews with some really great people involved with the astronomy department at SDSU. So... I know that the month this is coming out is Black History Month, and the next episode I have planned, this is just poor planning on my part, I should have done something like that, but um, the next episode I will be talking a lot about uh, Black Lives Matter and the charity for the month, because next week, uh, next month's episode is going to be talking about edibles and how they have changed the food industry a little bit. Now, uh, I would though like to remind uh, take the time right now to remind people that black lives matter and that america has so much to work on but uh, because this episode does focus on asian cultures mostly i felt it would be most appropriate to discuss the national queer asian pacific islander alliance or the nqa pia it's a federation of lesbian gay bisexual and transgender asian americans south asians southeast asian and pacific islander organizations so they seek to build the organizational capacity of local LG- LGBTAAPI groups, develop leadership, promote visibility, educate communities, and advocate for immigrant advocate for immigrant rights, enhance grassroots organizing, and expand collaborations. And they also challenge L- anti-LGBTQ bias and racism. So be sure to check out their site and donate if you can. They also have really cute t-shirts and fans you can buy uh, if you would like to rep them as well as donate to them. They are a really great website to check out. And before we get on to the rest of the podcast, I would like to do a shameless plug of a new podcast that I'm a part of. It's called Opening the Vault, and we review classic Disney movies. Uh, And yes, I do get very historical and very feminist just in case you were worried. So another thing I would like to say, we're not necessarily Disney adults, you know, the people who like sort of know all the stuff by heart, they have like a season pass. Uh, It's pretty interesting because a lot of us just have a really great appreciation for film and lore and stuff like that, or we grew up watching it and it's sort of a childhood nostalgia. So I 
will say that as much as we love these videos, we are critical of them in the ways that we should be, as in racism, sexism, and I am really happy to have two co-hosts, John and Ben, and they're great. They do amazing work and research. Ben himself actually is the reason the project came together at all. He had the idea and put the word out on a subreddit that is where we met. And he's got a few other podcasts he works on. He does streaming. He's really great to work with, and so is John. And more, most importantly, John does have a very cute cat. <laughs> so uh, now that the plug is over, I do have a lot of research to give you. Now, I did reach out to the astronomy department to have fun little moon facts for you guys at the end of the podcast. However, I did have some trouble getting in contact with a Chinese historian. Uh, I think the reason being that I don't... <clears throat> I think the reason for that being I know a astronomer personally, my sister, who is going to be featured on here as well. It's like a weird family reunion because my dad was in the background of the beginning. Um, so she reached out to people in her department that she knows. I work in an anthropology department and um, I thought that that could be applicable to a history department. I reached out and uh, I didn't get, I did get a response from a historian that I reached out to. She does more modern history, so she wasn't quite comfortable coming on. Um, she reached out to a few of her colleagues who were unfortunately too busy. And there's also the Chinese Historical Society in San Diego, who I've been trying to get in contact with, but uh, they are closed for COVID, so I can imagine they had a hard time getting my emails at all, probably. I don't even think they have gotten them. Um, but please check out the Chinese Historical Society, and uh, they have a really great, they have a really great, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a... They have a great collection of history over there. They're very nice, but they were very busy when I last saw them, I guess. <clears throat> but I will have you know that I invited a scientist to discuss this time measurement. Um, and <clears throat> so we're first going to be talking about the lunar calendar because the Chinese New Year is also known as Lunar New Year. And I will have you know that I invited scientists to talk to us uh, at the end of my spiel, and they came to discuss this time measurement. I also broke out my intro to astronomy notes to talk to you all about this. Uh, I took that class specifically because it's what turned my sister on to astronomy, and I really want to know what her projects are on, so I figured I'd brush up. Uh, I also use Wikipedia a lot. Um, I fact-check myself. And I also used an article from Russia Beyond by Oleg Yegorov, Britannica.com, a National Geographic article by Aaron Blakemore, and AncientOrigins.com. So, <clears throat> a lot of scholars have argued over what is the oldest representation of a lunar calendar. There's about four examples I can talk to you about it. Uh, Warren Fylde in Scotland has found a lunar calendar that dated back to 8000 BC. The village of Montagnac in southwestern France uh, had a couple of complex series of caves called the La Salle. I hope I'm saying that right. And they have marks on them that date back to 17,000 years. Uh, 
that some scholars have theorized that ancient hunter-gatherer societies have conducted astronomical observations of the moon as far back as the Upper Paleolithic. So what I'm talking about is a lot of, uh, with the cave paintings in France, that's not the oldest cave painting we have. In fact, the oldest one is in Africa. I'm totally blanking on where in Africa, which sucks, because that's not a monolithic culture, obviously. But it it dates back to about 77,000 years ago. So very interesting and very old. So I couldn't find representations on the Wikipedia article of uh, calendars on these cave paintings. I think it's mostly telling stories and not necessarily keeping time, which is why I didn't find them mentioned on the article. And if you are a little interested about women's involvement in this, please go back to episode 16. That's on mother sauces. You can learn about sauces and then you can wait till the end to hear about the book of the month. And it talks, uh, it talks about, I talk about a book called Who Cooked the Last Supper. It's really amazing and it sort of recontextualizes prehistory and um, talks about theories of women's actual involvement in history because as we know early historians and anthropologists were pretty sexist and racist and she works to sort of demuddle that area of time and she talks about how her on her theory of women being the first to make calendars because uh, yes they were probably used in religious services early on however women were involved in the earliest religions uh if you remember venus figures and everything so it could also be a religious object but it could also be used to track menses of women so they because it comes pretty regularly unless you've got a hormone imbalance or something i don't know but <laughs> anyway there are two types of months that are commonly used to measure time. Sidereal months uh, use the movements of the stars, like the sun and constellations, around the Earth as a reference, and those months take about 27.3 days to finish up. And synodic months are what we're talking about this episode. They use the moon phases as a reference and last 29.5 days. So these moon phases, these calendar, uh, these months that use moon phases are really interesting because they don't always start on the same type of moon phase, which we'll get into later. Now, the Gregorian calendar is what's most used, uh, commonly used around the world. It's a solar cylindrical system that evolved out a lunar calendar. So it's like they mash the two kinds of timekeeping together. So interestingly, lunar calendars are used by a variety of cultures, and therefore they have a lot of different starting points in their months. See what I'm saying? So I found cultures that used full, new, or crescent moons as the start. And because this calendar is really important culturally, some have used the lunar calendar to determine the days to celebrate religious festivals and national holidays, while still using the more popular Gregorian calendar to keep the same days as the rest of the world. Now, here's a reason why. It's a fun little calendar mix-up. So the 1908 Olympics were held in London from April 27th to October 31st. They didn't really have a separation of uh, summer and winter Olympics, which is why it took so long. And in 1918, Russia, uh, until 1918, sorry, Russia used the older Julian calendar 
that the Gregorian was divide, uh, derived from, and it, uh, and Europe and North America had already transferred to the Gregorian calendar. So the Russian team arrived two weeks after the opening ceremonies uh, because of this time lag. And because of the extra-long Olympics this year, they were still able to, able to participate in a majority of the events. They just sort of missed the opening ceremony in the first few... Uh, what's the word? The first few... <clears throat> first few events. <clears throat> now, Nikolai Panin Kolomenkin... Oh, I hope I said that right. He was the first Russian to win a gold medal for the Olympics that year for ice skating. And I have to say, his outfit for the performance is really stylish. Like, I could probably see someone now, like a hipster, like, totally wearing that on the streets. And some of the holidays that are determined by this lunar cycle include Ramadan. That's the ninth month of the, uh, that's held on the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. And this lunar calendar, uh, and this, uh, the Islamic calendar, which is based on a crescent moon, as the start of its month, and it's observed by fasting, prayer, reflection, and community. This holiday commemorates Muhammad, uh, the Prophet Muhammad's first revelation. So, very important. Uh, another very important holiday determined by this is Easter, also called Pascha in Greek and Latin, and it's also called Resurrection Sunday. It's a holiday commemorating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, as I feel like a lot of us know, and Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, and Mongolian people celebrate their new year this way. And we'll get into that in a minute, because that's what this episode's about. And it can also be called Spring Festival for a very interesting reason. Uh, the Nepali people also use this to celebrate their new year. And there's this thing called the Mid-Autumn Festival, also known as the Moon Festival or Mooncake Festival. It's the second most important holiday after Chinese New Year and called Chuseok. I really hope I said that right, um, in Korea, and Tsukumi in Japan. Now, here's the thing. I thought I could give you guys a cool mooncake recipe um, and, you know, do like a moon food related episode for this, but the more I researched it, the more I realized that I was totally wrong in that I thought that Chinese New Year meant, since it's based on the Lunar New Year, it had like mooncakes because moon moon, um, that actually they are consumed during, during the moon festival, which is in mid-autumn. So I could have already covered it on the Halloween festival, but I didn't. <sighs> now, uh, there's this thing called the, this holiday called Loi Creton, which I hope I'm saying it right, but it's a Siamese festival celebrated by nethers, uh, many southwestern Thai cultures. And this name can sort of loosely be translated to uh, to float ritual vessel or lamp. And it comes from the tradition of making kratong, or buoyant decorated baskets, which are floated on a river. And many Thais are used the kratong to thank the goddess of water, the Hindu goddess Ganja, Frame Konga, K-H-O-N-G-K-H-A. I think I said that right. And... This festival can actually be traced, uh, trace its origin back to India. And they also are, another holiday is Vesak or Buddha's birthday, and that's determined by lunar calendar. 
And the last two holidays are Diwali and Rosh Hashanah. So Diwali is known as the Festival of Lights. It symbolizes the spiritual victory of light over darkness, good over evil, and knowledge over ignorance. So this festival is widely associated with Lakshmi, goddess of prosperity, with many other regional traditions connecting the holiday to Sita and Rama, Vishnu, Krishna, Yama, Yami, Durga, Kali, Hanuman, Ganesha, Kubera, Dan Vantari, and Vishvakarman. Vishvakarman. And Rosh Hashanah is known as the Jewish New Year, which we actually will be covering later this year. So lunar calendars have been used all over the world, as we have seen. And some of the ancient cultures and modern cultures that use it even today are the Babylonians, the Celtic people, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, and Mongolians, Egyptians. Uh, ancient Egyptians used this, as did the ancient Greek, Hindu people, Iranian and Hebrew, uh, Iranian, Hebrew, and Islamic calendars. Uh, Iranian, Hebrew, and Islamic people used this as their calendar. Ancient Macedonians, the Mayan people, the Roman, uh, ancient Romans, the Thai lunar calendar, Thai and Tibetan and Assyrian people, the Yoruba and the Igbo, the Burmese also use this, and there's also a calendar used by the Maori called the Maramataka. Maramataka. And also, I'm thinking about doing an episode about the whole Mayan calendar ridiculousness where people just misread it. If you're interested, you can email me at digitalsue at gmail.com. <clears throat> now, we're going to get into the history of the Lunar New Year as it is celebrated in a lot of East Asian cultures. <clears throat> now, the Lunar New Year this year is going to be celebrated on Friday, February 12th. And New Year always falls on the second new moon after the winter solstice. It is called Chunji by the Chinese. By the Vietnamese, it's called Tet. The Koreans call it Solnal. The Tibetan people call it Losar. And it is also secularly called Spring Festival. It's also celebrated in Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, and places with large Chinese populations. The origins of the New Year Festival, uh, of the Lunar New Year Festival as celebrated in China, date back at least 3,400 years. I've gotten a lot of conflicting evidence on that, but that is the one that I could fact check. Now, oracle bones were inscribed with astronomical records to indicate that the celebrations existed at least as early as 14th century BC when the Shang Dynasty was in power but some believe it started as early as Emperor Yao and Shun, and that is about 2300 BC. So a lot of conflicting evidence on when this started. And according to tales and legends, the beginning of Chinese New Year started with the fight against a beast called Nian, who had the body of a bull and the head of a lion. It was a ferocious animal that lived in the mountains and hunted, these, uh, and hunted the people who lived just outside of this forest. And towards the end of winter, when he had exhausted all the resources in his little area in the mountains, Nyan would come down on the first day of New Year 
to the villages to eat livestock, crops, and even villagers, but especially their children. So to protect themselves, the villagers would put food in front of their doors at the beginning of every year, so it wouldn't attack any more people. Now, Nyan was said to be afraid of three things, the color red, fire, and noise. So when the new year was about to come, the villagers would hang red lanterns outside their home and paste red scrolls on the, their windows and their doors. So according to Chinese culture, red is the emblem of joy and it's supposed to symbolize virtue, truth, and sincerity. They also used firecrackers to frighten away Nyan, sort of incorporating fire and noise as two fears. And from then on, Nyan never came through the village again. He was just like, he just noped on out of there, never coming back. Which I understand. And this tradition has become less popular as of late because there are a lot of new air pollution restrictions in China. So they don't put off as many firecrackers as they used to. Now, according to legend, the Nyan was eventually captured by Hongjun, Hongjun, Hongjun Lao Tzu, an ancient Taoist monk, and Nyan became his mount, which is kind of the most badass, like, non-horse you can ride. Sounds so cool. And now onto modern traditions. Ten days before the beginning of the new lunar year, houses are thoroughly cleaned to remove any bad luck that might be lingering inside. Spring festival, as it is called, in lasts for 40 days and has multiple festivals and rituals embedded in it. Now, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day are reserved exclusively for family celebrations, and it includes religious ceremonies honoring air. And, and it also includes a lot of religious ceremonies that honor ancestors. So family members receive red envelopes that contain small amounts of money. And other customs and traditions include honoring one's elders, which usually involves visiting the oldest and most or, or most senior member of the extended family. <clears throat> Often the evening preceding Chinese New Year's Day is an occasion for Chinese families to gather for the annual reunion dinner. Now dances and fireworks are held throughout the holidays and it culminates in the Lantern Festival, which is celebrated on the last day of the New Year's celebrations. On this night, colorful lanterns light up houses and traditional foods are eaten. So I looked up a few traditional foods and I really apologize if I say any of these wrong. I am trying my best here. <clears throat> So yuan chao, which are sticky rice balls that are supposed to symbolize family unity, fagao, or prosperity cake, and yu sheng, which is raw fish and vegetable salad, are served. So lettuce and other vegetables are eaten to symbolize wealth and prosperity. A whole chicken is usually served to represent family togetherness. Fish is also usually served whole, but that's supposed to symbolize abundance. And shrimp is also sometimes served and it's supposed to symbolize health and good fortune. Now, dumplings are supposed to represent increased wealth in the coming new year. Noodles served for this holiday are longer than normal and served uncut to represent long life. Fruits like tangerines, oranges, and dragon fruit, which is kind of my favorite fruit that doesn't grow around here, <clears throat> which dragon fruit is one of my favorite new fruits that I have tried in the past year. are for health and good luck, 
spring rolls are meant to represent wealth rice brings fertility and luck to the new year sweets like candy or desserts have served as meals and they lead to a sweet life now hot pot which i really want to go to a hot pot restaurant when quarantine is up and finally be around a group of friends instead of seeing them over zoom or maybe one at a time after we've quarantined and hot pot symbolizes the coming together of family and friends so this year's celebration should be very interesting as this holiday is really known for uh <clears throat> this holiday really is known as the world's largest human migration close to three billion people traveled to family over the 40-day period of this festival in 2020 which uh so in 2020 that was closer to january so we hadn't been in lockdown yet i think uh so at least here in so we hadn't been in lockdown yet so this travel is called chunyun or spring migration now the republic of china adopted the gregorian calendar in 1912 so they made it to the olympics on time and the government rebranded lunar new year as spring festival because it is so important to their culture and that's sort of how it is known today now before we get into moon facts i did want to talk about uh, i looked up sort of the zodiac for 2021 because uh, as I'm sure some of you know in Chinese culture uh, every year in <clears throat> every year is sort of the year of a certain animal on the zodiac so 2021 is going to be the year of the white metal ox it's supposed to symbolize loyalty hard work determination confidence and discipline there should be success and great achievement in projects being worked on, and this coming year should lead to good achievements. So that made me feel really positive about the new year. Uh, I hope that feels good for you guys too. Let's get on to the moon facts and finish up. Yeah, and we'll have hopefully a better year than last year. And I just realized that I want to tell you guys the tool of the month before we got in, we get into the interviews because I think ending on the interviews will be really fun. Now, uh, I have something a little out of the ordinary that I don't think you necessarily need, but I think it's a fun little thing to have. So I have this cheese grater with a crank handle on it that I stole from my mom and dad when I moved. And I'll add a picture to it. I hope I did it justice and you know what I'm talking about. But it feels like I'm at the Olive Garden, but I'm not giving judgment on how much cheese they put on everything. And I found it during my latest move. I was going through the kitchen, picking out the tools that I have, uh, picking out like my tools and silverware. And my dad was about to throw it out and said that it had never been used. And I was just overcome to ur with the urge to use this lonely tool. And I asked, and I'm pretty sure, well, my dad is pretty sure that this cheese grater was given to them for, like, their wedding, and they've just never used it. Um, so I hope I didn't out my parents that they haven't used this one gift. But it's very fun. Uh, I got a Costco-sized block of Parmesan cheese from Costco, and I've been having a lot of fun. I put it on my salad. I eat too much pasta now <laughs> in quarantine, so I put too much cheese on my too much pasta. And it, it has given me a small amount of joy in a 
really not very joyful year in 2020. So let's go on to the interviews where I actually have the guests provide the book of the month. Just to preface these interviews, I would like to say I interviewed everyone separately. So if it sounds a little weird from person to person, that is probably why it was just, you know, recording in someone else's home. And I did notice while I was editing everything together that I forgot to ask certain question to one person, but I asked it to everyone else. I wasn't trying to be, I wasn't trying to bully these really nice people who agreed to talk to me. They were all really great. Uh, everything that's weird in these interviews is my fault, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Everyone was really accommodating and sweet. So I hope you really get a kick out of this section because I had so much fun talking to these people. Let's start with the, the first question. I'll just have you introduce yourself like it's the first day of class, your name, the school you go to, your major, and maybe something you're working on for your research. Sure. Uh, my name's Professor Douglas Leonard of San Diego State University uh, in the Department of Astronomy. And uh, my particular research, the particular area of astronomy that fascinates me, is actually the fact that stars have lives. They are born, they live lives, and then they die. And about one out of every hundred stars dies in extraordinary fashion uh, by exploding. Most stars don't die by exploding. We don't think our sun is going to die by exploding, so don't lose any sleep over that. But rare stars do die in, by exploding. And when they do, it's one of the most violent events in the universe. And uh, I like studying the explosions. And I like studying the stars before they explode, if we can. And that's very hard to do. But very recently, my, uh, I've opened a new area of research, which is nice. It's the first time I've ever had an area of research where I can actually bring my children outside and point to the object that I'm studying. Because you can actually see it with your eyes, which has never been true for me before. I always needed telescopes. But I've undertaken a study of the star Betelgeuse, which is one of the most famous stars in the sky. Um, it's in the constellation of Orion, and if you find the constellation of Orion and look for the really red star, that's Betelgeuse. And what excites me about that star is it's exactly the type that we think will explode soon. And in astronomical terms, soon means in the next million years. So we have to be patient, but it could be tomorrow. And I, I'm enjoying, <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying working with my students, and we're, we're studying properties of that, that actual star using uh, the equipment at our, at our observatory out at Mount Laguna. That's really that's cool. But that's really exciting to have something so close to study instead of like having to visualize something like so far off you can't see it with the naked eye. Yeah, um, this thought occurred to me three years ago, there was a solar eclipse and I went to, uh, I got along the path of totality with my family. It was very exciting doing something astronomical with my children or elementary school age, um, you know, that wasn't so esoteric. They could just see what I, what I was excited about. And that got me thinking about actually trying to do a project on an object you can actually see in the sky. And it's not something a lot of astronomers do these days. We're always pushing the limits of our telescopes to see in the farthest reaches of the universe. And uh, I thought it would be fun to do something um, that was so easy to describe. Yeah, I remember that eclipse. I, I saw it with my sister and my mom. Our dog was there too, but I don't think he cared. <laughs> Didn't care. Got it. 
was bothered. But uh, just going back real quick, you said that our sun probably isn't going to explode at the end of its life. Yeah. Uh, what would it do instead? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's kind of a humbling piece of knowledge to know that our sun will die, which in astronomical terms means it just runs out of fuel and stops shining. You know, it has to have a massive amount of fuel to keep putting off the light that it does. And at some point, it kind of runs out of fuel, like a car runs out of gas. And when our sun does that, it'll be a pretty bad day for the whatever inhabitants of the Earth might still be here. Actually, it'd be a series of days, series of years. The sun will change its properties towards the end of its life. And one of the annoying things it's going to do is it's going to swell up. It's going to bloat up and become huge. And calculations differ on this, but it's basically going to swallow up the Earth's orbit. If we won't be actually inside the sun at this point, we'll be right along the surface of the sun. And so the sun will just take up the entire sky. And that's obviously going to have devastating effects on our atmosphere and oceans and life and everything. That's the bad news. The good news is that's not for another four and a half billion years. And mm -hmm. then after all that excitement's over with, basically just the corpse of the sun, um, which is just this tiny little, I say tiny, it's the size of the earth which is tiny compared to the current size of the sun, kind of just corpse of the once massive star, which we call a white dwarf. And it's no longer generating its own uh, energy at that point. And so if the Earth survives all that, it'll just be orbiting this little cinder at the uh, center of our solar system. Oh, so it'll be a lot cooler too. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, yeah, okay, that's an interesting question. The, the white dwarf starts out scorchingly hot, actually, um, but then it cools off over time. So it won't be a good plot time to be around on Earth. Uh -huh. If humans are still around, it would be nice if we've learned to colonize a, a planet that's orbiting a nice young star, not an old one like the sun will be at that point. But that's getting pretty far in the future, I think. I haven't, I didn't think about that. I, I guess I would think like, if you're looking for a star, you would just want one that's just like the sun, but that makes sense. <laughs> well, yeah, you'd want a young version of the sun. <laughs> Our sun is middle age. It was born four and a half billion years ago, and it's about halfway through its life. So if you could find another sun-like star that, you know, say was born a billion years ago, then you'd be great for another eight billion years. So uh, you just have to figure out how to get there, and you have to hope there's an Earth-like planet there. And uh, <laughs> there are a lot of ifs. A lot of factors. <laughs> so you work at SDSU, and my sister tells me that you're the department outreach coordinator. Uh, yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about that, like what you do for that job? Sure. So um, that's right. I'm at SDSU, and uh, we, I'll say, we participate in a lot of events that go on throughout the year that are kind of part of what the university does overall. That's part of it. Like they have an open house day where all departments kind of advertise to prospective students. Um, and, you know, we run like telescope viewing, uh, information booths, planetarium shows, virtual reality, um, you know, solar viewing, sunspots. And that's kind of like our open house day. And that happens every, it's usually in March. Last year, we had to do it virtual, which wasn't nearly as good. <laughs> um, virtual astronomy. Um, um, we also participate in 
things like this, uh, an annual event called STEM Exploration Day, where area high schools come in to learn about um, uh, careers in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and, and we talk about our department there. But what we also do, probably the bulk of what we do, are respond to requests that come from the community. Um, usually it's school groups or, you know, we've done other types of groups as well that are just interested. Um, and generally the th types of things we do are provide planetarium shows. We have a very small old planetarium and we'll invite the group in to get a planetarium show uh, from our department. It's usually part of like a school field trip. Um, some bigger events, we might take a group out to Mount Laguna Observatory, which uh, is about an hour away from the campus. Um, we have sent uh, volunteers out to do star parties, which is basically bringing telescopes out to look at stars. Um, basically anything people ask, if we can provide it, we're a small department, so we, if we get too many requests, we can't necessarily do everything that, that people wish. Um, but we uh, have a really dedicated core of volunteers and we try to respond to any types of events that people ask us to do. And I'm also the, you know, it, my official thing is media and outreach coordinator. And I guess part of the media part is what I'm doing with you right now, which is the podcast. Um, I've done several TV shows in the past and radio broadcasts and even local TV news spots on astronomical events. So in this way, we try to let the community know that our department exists and what we're doing. Okay, that sounds pretty like a fun job though. You get to like talk to all sorts of people for that. Yeah, I, I always enjoy the events a lot. Setting them up can be pretty tedious, but I love the events itself. That, 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 that's never changed. And, uh, because you are the outreach coordinator, I did talk to you about maybe telling the podcast a little bit about the Lunar New Year because that's another uh, name for the Chinese New Year that's going to be happening in February this year. Yeah. So calendars, I mean, I could give you a really boring, long discussion of all the different calendars over time and history, um, but I'll try to summarize it in, in this overly simple way. There have basically been two ways to, to mark time um, that humans have used. And one involves the sun, and the other one involves the moon. And the United States um, currently uses a calendar based on the sun, and that's our 365-day calendar, determined each day by the rising and setting of the sun, and it's basically the amount of time it takes the Earth to orbit the sun once. That's basically our definition of a calendar year. Other cultures over time have, uh, you know, going back into history, and as you just alluded, even some modern cultures, adopt um, a calendrical system based on the moon. And it's basically based on the moon's orbit around the Earth. And the moon takes about 29 and a half days to orbit the Earth once. And so a lunar month is close to, but not exactly equal to, our traditional calendar months. I mean, even the word month comes from moon, moon, okay? So our calendar has lunar origins in it, 
but it's now been rigged to the sun cycle, not the moon cycle. But the Chinese calendar is based on lunar orbits being one month long. Okay. Um, the tricky thing is you don't get exact, it's not exactly 12 lunar orbits, 12 moon months in one solar calendar year. It, it falls like 11 days short. You get 12 of those and it's only 355 days or something like that, not 365. And so the two calendars get out of sync with each other. Um, and so if you, have, if you did a purely lunar calendar, the seasons would cycle through the months over the course of years because the two calendars aren't synced up. The Chinese calendar is technically called a lunisolar calendar, meaning it's moon-based, but it's also, it, they rig it to the solar calendar as well. And so what that means is they have to keep doing adjustments to it to keep making it so that the lunar months come at the same time of year, each year. It's complicated. Um, but the traditional uh, definition of the start of their uh, new year is, and this gets pretty geeky, but it's the new moon that occurs between, I think it's January 24th and February 25th, or Jan, uh, it, it's, maybe it's January 21st to February 20th. It's like a month in there. Mm. It's whenever in that period, yeah, whenever in that period a new moon occurs, that's their new year. So it changes, the, the exact date changes year to year. And yeah, I think- The, the range is a, the 21st of January to the 20th of February. I think that's right, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And I think in 2021, it's coming on like February 12th. It is, yeah. Okay, yeah, so that's then, and then that's when all the celebrations happen and uh, in the Chinese culture because that's like our, it's like our January 1st, it's like our New Year's Day. All right, that's really cool. I'm Kelsey. Uh, I'm an astronomy major at San Diego State. And what am I going to do with my degree? I want to hopefully apply to graduate programs. I'm applying starting this month, I think. And then uh, I'll see if I can manage to get in anywhere. If I do, then I'd like to consider finding a position as a research professor at a university or as a data scientist in maybe like a government lab or a research lab. Um, if I don't get in, then that's totally fine. I am thinking of maybe looking for coding jobs because I do a lot of Python work in the event that I can't manage to get into a graduate program. I think you'll get in. <laughs> we'll try. Are you opening something right now? Oh, I have an ice pack because um, I have ant bites. Oh, no. I'm in a fight with some ants. Uh, ow. <laughs> well, it just sounded like you're like opening up. <laughs> oh, sorry. Opening up a snack. Yeah, no, that's just my ice pack. Sorry. It triggered my younger stuff. sibling response. I wanted to ask for some. <laughs> May I have some snacks? <laughs> well, uh, can you tell us about some projects you're working on? Yeah, so I work in a field called cosmology. So cosmology is the study of the beginnings of our universe, how it began, and some of the physics of how it began. And specifically, I work with these radio telescopes 
that are sort of looking for this um, interaction that the very first stars had with all the surrounding gas. Uh, and we're looking for that interaction because if we could detect it, we could learn a lot about the formation of those first stars and the first galaxy that sort of uh, populated our universe with the very first, or some of the very first light. Cool. And can you tell us a little bit about radio telescopes? Like what sure. they are? So radio telescopes, basically the difference between, well, I guess the, a telescope that you're probably thinking of, if you're thinking of a telescope, is an optical telescope. So, and that's just describing um, the telescope in terms of sort of the energy of light that it can pick up. So optical light is light that is in a wavelength that we can see with our eyes just regularly. And that's going to have a much higher energy than radio light, much has a lower energy. Uh, we think of light in terms of its wavelength. And the wavelength is sort of, gosh, I'm trying to think how to describe this. Um, I won't tell you about wavelength because I feel like that's just going to get complicated to explain. Um, but basically, these are very, very low energy. This is very low energy light. And to sort of collect that, we have to look for a very large area because the size of the little pockets of light pretty much are much, much larger than the size of the pockets of light that like a backyard telescope would be collecting. So the telescope that I collect data at, or not that I collect data at, that I use data from, is about five kilometers long. Uh, and that's, you know, the entire telescope isn't five kilometers long. It's a bunch of telescopes over this five kilometer area that pick up this light. And radio telescopes tend to be much bigger because they have to sort of go after this lower energy, longer uh, wavelength light. I don't know if that was a helpful explanation. No, that was. That was good. Hi, I'm Cynthia. Right now, uh, I'm an astronomy major at San Diego State. It's my last year here. And at the moment, I'm currently a summer intern at Carnegie Observatories, and I'm working with my mentor, Greg Wall. Our research is focused on investigating spectral properties of galaxies near quasar environments. So specifically, some things that we're just looking to see if there's a relationship with is like star formation rates and metallicity in galaxies. So I'm Caleb Christensen. I'm the president of the Swartz Astronomical Society. I'm also working as the technical lead for the radio telescope project at San Diego State. I actually specialize in software though. I'm a computer science major uh, at San Diego State. Oh, awesome. Okay. So is that the only project you're working on right now? Are you researching anything else or no? Um, so I have an internship. I'm actually working at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Oh. And they're the ones that, uh, they do a bunch of stuff, but they're most famous for uh, the physics of small stuff. So like particle colliders or like the physics of the interiors of suns, stuff like that. I'm not doing that particular work. I'm actually working on a, a different project. Um, but <laughs> That's where I'm interning. So. Awesome. So where is that, uh, the laboratory? So the lab itself is in Livermore, which is kind of by San Francisco. Um, That's quite a drive. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually working remotely, though, because of the pandemic. So I'm, I'm in Utah right now. My house is <laughs> being renovated. That's why I'm in the car. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a surprisingly good reception for Utah. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
I'm still in San Diego. Why don't you tell everyone why you chose this field in the first place, how you fell into this? Sure. Okay, so astronomy, um, I actually kind of didn't know what I wanted to do with my life after high school. And I was just kind of going to community college. I wanted to get a nursing degree because I sort of needed a way to, you know, make money because living in Southern California and trying to like work customer service jobs is insane, not totally sustainable. And I, I wanted to, I guess, get a nursing degree because I did like, um, I was very interested in like, you know, the human body and stuff, you know, anatomy was really fascinating to me. And I kind of, um, that didn't last long in college though, because in my first semester, I took a, an astronomy 101 course. Uh, and I just fell in love with it. It was the coolest thing that I had seen. I was just fascinated by what we could study in the night sky. And, you know, it was so much more than, oh, there's a star over there. That's a constellation. It was, you know, these supernovas that, you know, explode and these stars die violently. And uh, there's black holes and there's huge galaxies with structure to them. And it was just fascinating uh, to even think about. And I kind of decided that I would really enjoy that a lot more than doing anything in like uh, medicine or nursing because um, it was just so fascinating to me. And I kind of stuck with it. It was tough, though, uh, because I really struggled with math. At the time when I took the astronomy class, I was actually in the lowest remedial math class that you could take. Uh, because I'd struggled so much in high school because I, I often, you know, I had work commitments in high school. I was working full time and I didn't really have the time to retain, you know, math skills. So uh, it was tough, but, you know, I persisted. I, you know, got through those classes and now I'm almost done. I'm in my last year of my degree. Um, and then cosmology specifically, how did I get into that? I, uh, let's see, last summer. Um, I got a job for the summer in Seattle, uh, working at the University of Washington in a lab up there where they do what I'm doing now. Uh, still the same project, actually, but uh, I, I just kind of really fell in love with the science. I, I, was, I found myself very interested in the questions I was trying to answer, and you know, I, I kind of saw the way that my research fit in to this whole big question. Uh, you know, certainly the signal we're trying to detect is, is very faint and very difficult to detect. Uh, you know, no single scientist is going to detect it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's very interesting to be a small part of that and be someone that can make a contribution to science. So I, I really enjoyed that. And yeah, I've continued with them for a little over a year now. Uh, I've been working on the same project for them, and I, I've really enjoyed it. And how did you come across this program? How did you get into the program where you went to Seattle? So uh, this is something called a research experience for undergraduates. They're often they're funded by the NSF. I'm trying to think, I don't think this one was funded by the NSF. Yeah, you can kind of look into them and apply around. Most people apply for uh, these during the semester after their junior year going into their senior year, but you can start much earlier um, and apply for them. They're great. You know, they're always paid positions. They usually pay, you know, 
usually more than what I would make during a regular semester. But yeah, I really enjoy them. They're they're fun. So they're usually like a summer course? They're not courses. They're like, um, well, I guess it depends. There's certainly like some universities will also offer courses. I know there's one in Japan where it's it's mandatory that you also take a uh, class in Japanese. So you're learning Japanese mm -hmm. while you're doing research in Japan, which sounds really hard. But, and then there's some that like, they'll have enrichment classes, like taking, you know, your graduate uh, general, I don't even remember what the acronym for the graduate exam stands for, but the GRE, they'll have classes for that. But it's never like a really intensive, like coursework. Yeah, let me try to think of a very short version. Um, so why I chose the field of astronomy stems from when I was younger. Basically, I was uh, at like a youth camp and I saw the Big Dipper and I just pretty much fell in love with the sky and its grandness. And my um, interest in astronomy began to increase uh, as I would watch documentaries, read books, ever since like I was 10 years old. And it really pushed me uh, to be interested in the aspect of teaching in astronomy and wanting to inspire others. Awesome, all right. And so you already said your project you're working on. Do you have any that you have like your sights on for the future or something you wanna do after you graduate, like a project you wanna join? Uh, so after I graduate, I am looking to apply to grad schools this upcoming fall. Uh, so that should be interesting. Um, research that I'm particularly interested in is actually things pertaining to quasars, neutron stars, uh, galaxies, just things, uh, systems that behave a little strangely compared to the norm. And I am hoping to get like some teaching experience just because that is what my goal is, is to become a professor in the future. Mm -hmm. So this is a food podcast, so not everyone knows quite what a quasar is and stuff. Could you give like a short little description? Yeah, so, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so a quasar is basically an extremely luminous galaxy, um, and it has a black hole in the center, and that black hole has matter accreting onto it and around it in something we call an accretion disk. Uh, so this black hole in the galaxy, the center is super, super bright. Usually it outshines the whole galaxy, so people can mistake it as a star in, telescope, in telescopes. Um, and they're just interesting to observe because, again, they're very strange and powerful in nature um, and they could tell us a lot about galaxy evolution. Oh, cool. So do we have one in the Milky Way that we can observe or? No, currently uh, we don't have a quasar at our, in the center of the Milky Way. We do have a super massive black hole, yes, um, but it's compared to other um, galaxies, our black hole is pretty dormant and more relaxed. Mm, okay, yeah. all right, cool. So I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, I think probably more I've always wanted to pursue it. Um, I always tell people a story that like in third grade or second grade, I think, we had a rule that you couldn't go into the library during recess. And I was very mischievous. So I would like sneak past my teacher into the library to the astronomy section. And just like, instead of playing outside, I would, I would be like reading books about Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty much been a passion of mine since I was younger. Oh, I just brought book out, books outside with me during recess. <laughs> oh, I didn't think of that one. Darn it. Don't ah. talk to me. I have my book in my bed. Don't talk to me. <laughs> well, that, that's a lot less dangerous, but probably a lot more smart as well. <laughs> uh, I think it was because I was kind of a goody-goody. <laughs> oh, yeah. Scared to break the rules. 
And since we are talking about the lunar calendar, I have been talking to everyone about what their favorite moon is in or out of our solar system and why it's their favorite. Uh, I'd say my absolute favorite moon is Io, which is the innermost moon of the uh, major moon of the Jupiter system. And the reason I love Io so much is, um, how to, how to, I mean, the basic reason I love it so much is it's incredibly volcanic. And so it's just spewing out uh, lava and volcanism all the time. It's the most volcanically or the most tectonically active surface in the whole solar system. But what I really love about it is how someone predicted it would be that way before it was actually discovered to be like that. When the Voyager spacecraft, which were launched in the late 1970s, were actually on their way to Jupiter to study Jupiter up close and its moons, uh, a scientist did some calculations that revealed that Io was locked in this really interesting, it's called a resonance. Basically, it's in a position where it's getting pulled on by Jupiter's gravity and also the gravity of the other uh, Jupiter's moons in such a way that it's stretching and squeezing the object so much that the scientists just predicted it's gonna be very volcanic. And then sure enough, when Voyager flew by it, took the first pictures, what do you see? A little volcano spewing out uh, uh, material. And so I love the idea of, uh, of, of a scientific prediction that's so out there, kind of just, I mean, that's a pretty big prediction to just be confirmed to be right in real time almost. So that's, I'd say Io is probably, probably my, my favorite moon. There are a lot of runner-ups, but that, that one I've always, I always, it also looks like a pizza if you've ever seen a picture of it. <laughs> It's just this red, you know, it's just, it's such an unusual looking uh, moon. Do we know what uh, kind of volcanic material it's shooting out? Hmm. <laughs> uh, I think it's like sulfur stuff. <laughs> so like similar to earth volcanoes? Because uh, we were talking about Titan and cryovolcanoes in another. Ah, okay. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on Io's volcanism. But uh, so I'm not going to venture too far into the exact composition of its material that it's that is spewing out. So I'll leave it at that and claim my ignorance for, for that. So my favorite moon, I would uh, say that my favorite moon is a moon that hasn't been discovered yet. It's the first exomoon. So uh, we talked about planets that are in other systems around other stars. We call them exoplanets had a long history of detecting those and uh so we, we know that there are planets around other stars and we're start sort of starting to see that it might actually very be the common it might be the norm that uh stars have planets around them but one thing that we haven't discovered yet is a moon around a planet around another star system uh i I Googled it right before I, I came on here, and it looks like literally a month ago someone announced a possible discovery, but it also doesn't look like it was replicated. So there may be a discovery of a first moon around another star system, but I would say that's definitely my favorite moon. It's a, it's a moon that, as of now, I don't believe has been discovered yet, but one that I'm excited to hear about when it does get discovered. It's out there. <laughs> We just don't it's know where. 
Yeah, so actually in my uh, solar system astronomy class last semester, uh, we had like a whole um, pretty much class period dedicated to learning about different moons in our solar system. And one in particular that I really liked is it's a moon called Europa and it's one of the four Galilean moons of Jupiter. Basically, um, to me, Europa is special for, and to many other scientists, special for three uh, reasons. One is its internal structure is that it has an outer icy crust a liquid ocean and then the mantle. And there's been evidence of a subsurface ocean um, seen through features on the crust, such as scalloped ridge features and gravity field measurements. Uh, two, the fact that there's an ocean on, in, in this moon and it's allowed to interact with the crust and mantle just because of the different placement of layers makes it possible for the moon to have minerals. And that's very important in like steps of life. And the last thing is that another thing um, that we've kind of deducted is a possibility of something called hydrothermal vents. And that's just a source of energy within the water for the moon. Uh, so with all these like different attributions, it's quite interesting because out of the four Galilean moons, it's actually the smallest, but it has a lot of special features. That's really cool. I really like Europa too. Have you seen the movie Europa Report? No, actually, I haven't, but I probably should. I have, like, a long list of astronomy movies I have to watch. It's really good, but I do have to say, like, you you can't be sad already when you watch it, because I've seen it, like, three times, and I cry so much every single time. <laughs> really, really good movie, though. I think it's still on Netflix, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out. And then, so when we talked, you said that you wanted to talk about Titan as your favorite moon. So if you want to go into why you like it so much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so first off, Titan is very, very similar to Earth. Uh, if Earth was like really freezing cold and had liquid methane rather than water. <laughs> so basically the temperatures are so freezing cold that water is like a solid rock, like as hard as iron. Don't back me, back me on that one, but similar. It's like a really hard uh, rock-like material. So there's liquid on the surface of Titan, uh, lakes of methane uh, type material, which is crazy because that's, as far as we know, one of the only other places in the solar system where there actually is like a liquid on the surface of a well, moon in this case, but you know, mm -hmm. like a solar body. Um, and actually every few decades, uh, instead of raining water, uh, the methane-ethane rain will kind of evaporate up into the atmosphere and then rain down. So you'll literally have rainstorms of methane. <laughs> um, is that also, like corrosive or no? Would that um, like, is it kind of? I'm not sure how it interacts exactly with the mainly water surface, the water ice surface, but I do know that there's rivers and there's also floodplains. Uh, we actually landed on a floodplain in 2006, I think. So it does have an erosive, erosion-like effect in the sense okay. that do you know the the name of the landing uh like was it uh, a manned like robot that fell, uh landed on titan or uh not quite we haven't gone past our own moon so far with people uh, and that was like 30 years ago they haven't gotten oh up sorry and like a like a <laughs> robot that someone's manning oh yeah 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 <laughs> i was like what no yeah, yeah. so so uh, nasa and the europeans actually did a joint mission I think they launched it in the late 90s, but it, it took like eight years to get there, around eight years. And it's the, the Huygens uh, Cassini probe, 
or the Cassini Huygens, I guess, technically. So the Cassini was the actual spacecraft that flew there. And then the Huygens probe was built by the Europeans, the European Space Agency. And it kind of careened through the atmosphere of Titan, uh, lifted off its little parachutes, landed. It took two hours to get through there and landed on the, on the floodplain. It took one picture because they had one camera. And I think it only lasted like an hour or something like that. It was a very oh, short yeah. amount of time. Uh, so is it like kind of like how the Mars rover is? Is it like the same sort of size and basically uh, so the same kind of mission, but shorter? Similar, yeah, similar. Uh, it's the same type of thing where they send a probe out. And the reason this one's not quite as famous as Mars is because it only lasted like an hour or two. And the reason for that is because the battery that we sent was a 90s battery, right? So it, <laughs> it didn't have enough power to last very long. And it also didn't have wheels or it couldn't move around. So it just, it took a picture, it was there for an hour, but it was just like the same view over and over again. Yeah. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> you can't help it. Poor guy. Right. That's really interesting though that you picked Titan because uh, the person I interviewed uh, just before you yesterday, Cynthia, she was talking about Europa and why she liked it and how she liked that it had like water and you or you know liquid and I guess scientists like liquid moons is that like a safe yeah yeah no, the, the reason it is that the astrobiologers really like them so as far as we know life needs a polar liquid for it to work so like trees you know they kind of use water to pull up through the ground they actually don't use any energy when they bring water from the ground up into their leaves and that's because of the polarity of water. So it kind of, like when you, you know when you stick a sponge into like a bowl of water, mm -hmm. it kind of creeps up it. It's the same principle. Uh, so water's really cool. Visual. <laughs> <laughs> I try, I try. Uh, but water's super crazy polar. Um, liquid methane, or the stuff that's on Titan, isn't quite as polar as water. So it probably wouldn't be, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but it probably wouldn't be as good for life. Um, but I did read a paper uh, a month or two ago that talked about how you could potentially potentially maybe possibly have some form of life that could use the polarity of the liquid on titan oh very interesting that's cool. possibility yeah. <laughs> that's what we like liquids we, mm -hmm. we know how to make life out of liquids i guess so yeah that's that's a good way to think about it and uh, do you have like a moon fact that you like to start a class out with um, to bring in new students? Just something that a lay person might not know and find really interesting and weird. Sure. Um, I'd say the weirdest moon fact that I know, which still just amazes me, has to do with our moon. Our moon's ridiculous, by the way. It's absolutely ridiculous. We live on a very small planet, Earth compared to something like Jupiter. Um, and yet our moon is as big as the moons Jupiter has. And so we have no business having such a big moon. Our moon is way out of proportion, you know, to the size of the planet it goes around. And the interesting thing in the first time I read this, I thought this can't be true. And, but it remains to this day uh, true. Our best theory for where our moon came from is that it was once part of the Earth. And at some point in the very early stages of Earth's development, a massive impact occurred. Uh, something probably about the size of the planet Mars smashed into the Earth and basically melted the entire body and a blob of it 
became detached and became the moon. And the first time I heard that, I thought, this is nuts. That can't be what we think the origin of the moon is. But it is. All the other ideas for how we got such a big moon and also trying to explain what the moon's made of and its composition and so forth all point to this origin as being the most likely one. And so the idea that the moon was, was one part of, of us and is, and is now not, and it happened because of this gigantic collision, that's a pretty weird fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did, when I first heard that, and um, I took an astronomy class a couple semesters ago, it's very interesting, because um, I wanted to know what my sister was talking about when she was telling me her research. Yeah. I was also thinking, I was like, oh, I wonder if like it was ever possible for us to have rings like Saturn or other planets because yeah. of like another impactor. Yeah. But like, I don't know what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. It's not just Saturn that has a ring. We've discovered mm -hmm. Jupiter has, has rings, um, the, all the outer, the major planets, uh, all the gas giant, as they're called, planets. Um, and the outer solar system have rings. It's a bit unusual for a smaller planet like the Earth to have rings. It's not saying it couldn't. And the origin of ring systems is still hotly debated. Uh, you know, and whether they're actually permanent features or temporary features of a planet is also hotly debated. Um, it's generally thought they're sort of transient things and that they change over time. Probably, I think a really cool thing about the moon is that we only ever really see one side of it uh, because of its orbit. Only one side of the moon is ever facing us. So there's a whole back half of the moon that we don't see from Earth. And we actually didn't see it until 1959 when the first photographs were taken. So you can actually find like old um, moon globes. So they make globes that are not Earth, but the moon and have all the craters on them. You can find one from before it was discovered and there's like half of the globe is just nothing because we don't know what's there. Uh, now we do, of course, but for a long time, we didn't know what the other side of the moon looked like. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, um, I think actually <laughs> I might have mentioned that accidentally in sequence with, with my last little talking bit. Um, I would say just uh, again, like the reason why like I have Europa as one of my favorite moons um, is again because of its size in comparison to like a lot of other moons but you get um, majority of moons in our solar system and not many of them are special or like big but we have this tiny moon this special moon since it's a Galilean moon of Jupiter and you know it has an ocean it has um, the possibility of interaction and some form of life inside it's uh, inside the ocean and I just think that's you know incredible. Uh, I did add this later on um, in the interviews where I asked everyone if they had any organizations they're a part of they want to mention or plug. Sure, I'll, I'll plug the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. It's a uh, uh, organization that promotes and encourages um, interest in space and science uh, to the public. And I'm on the uh, publications committee of, of the, it's called the ASP, but they also do a lot of outreach efforts into local communities. So it's the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. Sure. So 
I would say that one organization that's actually really made a difference in my career and in my understanding of and appreciation of astronomy is Boyce Astro. Um, so if you're at community college and you're thinking, you know what, astronomy sounds really interesting and you're in the San Diego area, I would seek them out and see uh, what they're doing for the fall because they're, I believe, still taking on students. I don't see why they wouldn't be. But they actually provide community college students with a way to get involved in research. And that's uh, something that's incredibly valuable when you're at community college because opportunities like that are very difficult to come across. Um, and I've actually been involved with them for a number of years now, and I, I really appreciate the work that they do. I love working with them. So it's Boyce Astro, B-O-Y-C-E Astro, uh, and I'd highly recommend checking them out if you're a community college student and you're in San Diego and you want to get involved in some astronomy research. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mentioned at the start, um, one president of the Schwartz Astronomical Society, that's a the Astronomy Club at SDSU, San Diego State University. Um, so if you're in San Diego and you want to check us out, I think you can Google us. You can find us on Instagram. We're in the process of making a website. So, yeah, check us out. <laughs> All right. And uh, how did it get its name, the society? The Swartz Astronomical Society. I know it's named after a person named Swartz, but I'm embarrassed to say I actually don't know. <laughs> Yeah. It's been the Astronomy Club at San Diego State for like 50 years or something. Oh, wow. Well, it is a pretty old school, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, up. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> hey, I just like forgot the difference between a manned and an unmanned space <laughs> mission, so I think you're safe. <laughs> for every podcast episode, we either we do a book of the month and a tool of the month, so I've asked everyone I'm interviewing today to tell me a book or a paper that they've been reading that they want to share with everyone. I'll simply use the book that I'm currently reading. And I think, I don't know if you're, I don't think your podcast is visual, but you'll be able to see it's a well-worn book <laughs> because it's a book I've, I've <laughs> read a few times, but I never tire of it. And, um, it's the Complete Novels and Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And I've been reading that too. That's too funny. Have you? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. We did not set this up, did we? It's, no. Um, but it's something I always come back to. It's funny. I, I, I'll let it go for five years and then, you know, I'll just come back and, uh, and I can just reread the stories and my brain is such that I don't even remember how they end. I just really enjoy the writing and the time period, and just sort of the philosophy that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle writes with. I find actually a lot of synergies between what he writes and modern physics in some ways, because <laughs> he, he, I actually, the story I was reading last night, I'll read an excerpt from here. It's from The Adventure of the Cardboard Box, and this is the final paragraph, and I'll just read this and see, and see what you think. It says, what is the meaning of it, Watson? said Holmes solemnly as he laid down the paper. What object is served by this circle of misery and violence and fear? It must tend to some end, or else our universe is ruled by chance, which is unthinkable. But what end? There is the great standing perennial problem to which human reason is as far from an answer as ever. 120 years later, we're still as far from an answer as ever 
um, about whether our universe is governed by chance or whether there's actually a design to it. And I find he sprinkles these kinds of thoughts throughout all of his stories. And I just love the way he writes. So it's an old book, but I find it very, uh, just it's relaxing and intriguing and interesting to read, as you know, if you're reading mm -hmm. it yourself. Yeah, I have the uh, audio book that I play when I'm doing like runs or yard work and it's really nice. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's great. I yeah. often read it just to calm my mind down when I'm trying to go to sleep actually at night. And it's not because it's so boring that it puts me to sleep. It's, it's because it's interesting enough to stop my mind from thinking about all the problems of the day. And yet it's also not troubling enough that it's gonna keep me awake. <laughs> So it fits into that nice little zone. So anyway, that that's something I'd recommend to people. I don't have any books that revolve around moons, which I'm sorry to disappoint. I would say that I really, really love Octavia Butler. And my favorite book by Octavia Butler is Dawn, which is a sci-fi book. And it is so, so good. And I'd highly recommend it if you're looking for uh, like a very interesting science fiction world. She's a very talented author. I'd recommend any book by her, but Dawn especially. I would say a favorite book uh, that I've read within like this past month or two. Uh, so it's called this book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Albom. And I was a little shy just reading the title. Like, I don't know what to expect. Like, this is an interesting title. Uh, but basically, this book highlights a man's life experiences, and it shows us the importance of co connection and uh, humanity in his afterlife. So basically, the author did, he did a great job with describing scenarios and feelings as if it were ourselves. And I feel like that allowed us to connect with the narrator, Eddie, as if we were one person. Um, and the book, to me, after reading it, um, it really made me self-reflect on like everybody I've met in my life even people just in passing and those who might have left as quickly as they came. Uh, and it was just encouraging and it made me feel more relaxed and present, you know, in right now. Uh, so mine's not a book. It's uh, actually a proposal that I read recently uh, for the next mission to Titan. Uh, so it kind of fits with the theme, Titan. <laughs> uh, it's called the Firefly Mission. Uh, it's proposed for 2006 and in my opinion, or not even my opinion, this is just fact, it is going to be the coolest NASA mission ever that is unmanned. I mean, the moon landings were probably a little bit cooler, but this is like a cooler place. So <laughs> the coolest NASA mission of all time, um, Firefly mission. Uh, let's see, what can I say about it? <laughs> so it's gonna send a, a drone to the surface of Titan. Like, you know, the drones you fly around if you have a remote control. It's gonna send one of those, like, all the way across the galaxy to land on the surface of Titan, and then it will be able to fly around. Um, it can fly like hundreds of yards at a time. Uh, I think it's scheduled to last two years, which is you know a lot better than a few hours, like the last mm -hmm. one. And also, it'll have all of our up to up to date tech on it. It'll be nuclear powered, so you can. Oh wow, that's <laughs> yeah, cool. it'll last a while. <laughs> I wonder for... is this the first drone that NASA's ever sent um, to another like astral body so they haven't they haven't landed one yet the the mission they just sent to mars like a few mm -hmm. weeks ago includes a drone um but mars's atmosphere is pretty thin 
Uh, so I'm not sure how far, how well it's going to work. I mean, I'm sure they've thought about it. They're smart NASA engineers. Mm-hmm. Mars's atmosphere, I think, is around 1% of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, so it's very, very thin. Uh, whereas Titan's atmosphere is four times thicker than the Earth's atmosphere. So it, it'd be a lot more similar to like swimming in water, you can think, right? Because it's so much thicker. So you could basically fly a lot easier. You can fly a lot farther with lower energy cost. Um, so it's actually, it's scheduled to fly, I think, around 110 miles total over the course of its two-year mission, 12 different flights. And just for some perspective, the Curiosity rover, the last rover we sent to Mars, mm-hmm. only travels like a centimeter per second, I think, or something like that. And it's only traveled around 15-ish miles, I think. Fact check me on that one. I will. I'll, I'll <laughs> um, double check. <laughs> in like the last... Uh, I think it's been four or five years that it's been on Mars. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you've got like the 15 miles of the Curiosity versus 110 miles over two years of the drone. And it's going to go from like sand dunes over here all the way to the base of this crater. Uh, and I think it'll land by a lake at one point. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a really, really cool mission. Oh, and to tie in some software there, since I'm a software guy. Oh, yeah. There's an eight-hour lag in the communication between... Um, Earth, like NASA headquarters, and the spacecraft, right? So mm-hmm. if they're flying it, and let's say, oh, like, uh, I mean, there's no birds on Titan, but like a cliff suddenly appears they didn't see before. They're not going to be able to tell the robot, like, don't bump into that cliff because the robot, you know, is eight hours away. <laughs> I, like, there and back eight hours for a radio signal. So they actually had to build machine learning algorithms that they could put onto the system, the software on board, and then tell it, okay, if you see a system that looks dangerous, pilot yourself to safety. So find a good place to land, a good way to land, a good way to take off. And so there's a bunch of software that makes um, a flying mission possible that wouldn't have been possible without software guys like me. (laughs) That's really cool. So like another stupid question, but like what's the possibility of it turning evil with all this learning software? (laughs) Very high, yeah, very high. Very high, okay. <laughs> I think AI, um, they've been working on it for a while, um, but they can't even get like self-driving cars to work super well yet. <laughs> and, yeah. and they're impressive, right? But I think I don't think I'd get into one for the next fifty years. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if the Firefly mission, though. I wonder if that's named after that TV show from a few years ago, Firefly. Could be space western. Yeah, I'll have to look into that and see. All right. Well, that is it for the interviews. I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this podcast. It took me a really long time to edit the interviews the way I did, and I immediately regretted it, but it sounded a lot better than anything else. So I hope you like it. Uh, It'll probably be a while before I interview this many people again. It'll probably just be one-on-one interviews, if I have any. I had so much fun. I would really like to give an extra special thanks to all the people who came on the podcast for this month. I had so much fun talking to them. They took time out of their busy schedules to speak with me, and I really appreciate it. Uh, around this time, I'm I'm sort of like in a weird... Around this time in the closer, I usually go over the book and the tool of the month, but we've already done that. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, maybe you want to recommend a future episode, please email me at digitalsue at gmail.com and find us on Instagram at digitalsue. 
all one word, lowercase, no underscore. And I will be posting pictures of all the books and papers that have been recommended this episode. And I also will have pictures of all the moons that were mentioned. Also, there's another special announcement with this new season. You can also hear more of my voice on the Opening the Vault podcast. It is a Disney review show that I'm doing with two other people. Uh, They are really great guys, and they have really funny takes on these movies. It's really fun to talk about it with them. So it'll be coming out in February, just like this episode is. So please keep a lookout for that. So please keep a lookout for the over opening the vault podcast. I keep trying to say over the garden wall. Um, it's not that. <laughs> so once again, thank you so much. Uh, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating, a comment or a review that really helps small podcasts like mine. And if you would like to please share it. Have a nice day, and I will see you next month.